Let me just ask you a question. Have you ever had a word that you didn't quite pronounce exactly right? My word is quinoa. When I first read the word quinoa, I thought it was quinoa, which makes perfect sense when you think about how it's spelt. My sister laughs at me because I call acai bowls acai bowls. My little friend Joshua in Toowoomba, who is two, can't quite pronounce the word coffee, so instead he says huggy, which I think is totally apt. And my eldest daughter, when she first read the word hormones at about the age of nine, she read it as hormones. Now, living in a house with four women, my husband has also decided that is quite apt, and so that's what they're called in our house to this day. Towards the middle of last year, I was experiencing what I thought was some hormone issues. Now, I know that's about TMI, but I thought I was in a safe place to share. But anyway, I was talking to a friend about the symptoms I was experiencing, and she recommended a local nutritionist who specialised in hormonal issues. So I made an appointment. She ran my blood work and tested the levels of all different kinds of hormones in my system and then called me up for a follow-up appointment to give me the results. I felt my heart beating heavy in my chest as I sat in her office that day waiting to hear that I was in the early stages of menopause. But that isn't what she said. She said, by all accounts, my estrogen and progesterone levels were all fine. No menopause for me, yet. But then she said, your adrenaline levels are off the chart, which would fully explain why my heart seemed to be playing the William Tell Overture. She started to go through possible treatment plans and different actions to take. She was talking about different methods to alleviate stress and anxiety, and she turned to me and asked, have you ever tried prayer and meditation? I can't tell you how strange it felt for a secular healthcare professional who I knew from my friend wasn't a Christian to prescribe the practice of prayer and meditation to relieve stress and bring peace. Here I was, a follower of the Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. I was supposed to be able to tell her what it was like to have that kind of peace that surpasses all understanding. I mean, I pray every day and frequently meditate on the Word of God. The passage about prayer from Philippians 4 that we discussed in last session is on the back of my toilet door and I memorised it years ago. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I knew that I'd experienced that kind of peace, that peace that goes beyond human comprehension. But when I thought about it, I realised that that place of peace was somewhere I only really ever visited. Sure, sometimes I managed to stay there for an extended visit, but it wasn't where I lived. I hadn't made it my home. In the weeks and months following my naturopath's appointment, I decided I would do whatever I could to decrease my adrenaline and stress levels. I've handed over some housework to my family. I've dropped a few unnecessary commitments. And I've cut sugar and gluten from my diet and switched to decaf coffee most days. I've seen my doctor have further tests done and I've also sought the guidance of a Christian psychologist. But I also made a decision. I decided that I wanted to learn to live and abide in that place of peace that Paul talks about. 
I wanted to fully experience what the psalmist said in Psalm 91, 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I wanted to take Jesus up on his invitation that he extends to us in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that a beautiful invitation? Let me read it to you again from the message version and just let these words wash all over you. Are you tired and worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I wonder if that resonates with anyone else. Do you crave rest for your souls? Do you want to learn how to live freely and lightly? Would you like to abide in a peace that permeates everything? Do you want to dwell in his shelter and rest in his shadow? The word dwell means to live, abide or make a place our home. With the theme for this conference being Homeward Bound, I would like us to take a look at how we can learn to live and abide in the shelter and covering of the Lord. The New King James Version calls it the dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. And who better to show us the way to this kind of life than the Prince of Peace himself. Most of what we know about Jesus we find in the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. These books are jam-packed full of stories, awesome sermon illustrations, wisdom and of course theology. And often when we read them that is what we see, parables and theology. But these books are actually written as biographies. They're the stories of Jesus' life. So not only do they tell us what he did and what he said, but they also show us how he lived. In order to take his yoke upon us and learn from him, we don't just need to pay attention to his teaching, we also need to pay attention to his lifestyle. It might seem a little strange that when Jesus is giving us an invitation to rest, he uses the imagery of a yoke, a piece of farming equipment. Farming is work, not rest. When I think of most of the farmers that I know, I think of them needing a nap or a holiday, not a yoke. But Jesus doesn't offer us an escape from life. He offers us the tools that we need to do life a new way. So in this session, we're going to look at the practices that Jesus lived day in and day out. We're going to discover how to live under that easy yoke that Jesus offers and look at how we can accompany him on the journey homeward bound, seeking to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. Now, some have called these practices spiritual disciplines, which they most definitely are. But in my mum mind, I tend to connect the word discipline to rules. 
And when things become rules, there's a risk that practices become legalistic. And legalism leads to bondage, not to a life that is free and light. Jesus doesn't command these practices, but he does say, follow me, learn from me. He teaches us how to live by example and invitation. So I'll be referring to these disciplines as the practices of Jesus. These practices are not anything new because, well, Jesus did them. And since he did, there's been lots of people that have written about them. Richard Foster in his book Celebration of Disciplines gives wonderful insight into a whole array of spiritual disciplines. More recently, John Mark Comer released a book entitled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which has quickly become one of my favourite books, and I'll most likely quote from it as we look at the following practices of Jesus. Slowing, Sabbath, Silence and Solitude, and Surrender. Now, I chose these practices not just because they make for a nice alliteration, but because these are the ones that have had a real impact on my journey, Homeward Bound, because it is a journey that I'm still walking, and it's my prayer that they'll have an impact on your journey too. Now, you may be surprised to see that I've not listed prayer as one of the practices that we are going to explore. But you see, each one of these practices is designed to bring us to a place of intimate, constant communion with our Father. Each one of these habits is designed to lead us towards a lifestyle of prayer where it doesn't become a discipline that you have to consciously make an effort towards, but rather it becomes a way of life until we find ourselves praying at all times with all different kinds of prayer. The practice of slowing is not traditionally classed as a spiritual discipline. Jesus doesn't tell parables about it and he doesn't really teach on it, but he certainly lived it. At first appearance, it may not be obvious. Jesus' life was full and busy. He was constantly travelling from place to place. Crowds demanding his attention, his days were full of homiletics and healings, controversy and questions. But in all of this busyness, the Gospels don't give us a picture of a Jesus who is hurried or harried. Can you ever imagine Jesus saying, look, I would really like to heal your leg, but I have somewhere to be. Can you talk to my apprentice, Judas? Can you imagine him stressed out at the end of a long day, snapping at Martha because she burnt the fish? Did he say to the children when they came to him, "Eh, now's not a great time, but I can schedule a play date for early next week. No, he said, let the children come to me and don't hinder them. Once when he was on his way to heal a sick girl, he gets interrupted by a woman with a chronic health condition and he just takes his time with her. No rush at all. Even when he hears that his dear friend Lazarus is dying, John tells us that he stayed where he was for two more days. A whole two days. Jesus' schedule was a full one full to the brim at times, and yet he didn't operate out of a fear that there was too much to do in too little time. Because he was able to trust his earthly mission into the hands of his heavenly father, he didn't operate from a place of hurry or anxiety. I often feel as though that's exactly where I operate from. As my to-do list gets longer, I find myself setting the alarm a little earlier, working longer days, multitasking to the max and doing whatever I can to squeeze more activity into each moment of the day 
fearful that if I don't, then there's just more to do on tomorrow's list. In her book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, Ruth Haley Barton lists nine different symptoms of a life being lived without margin or in a state of hurry sickness. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but you may like to keep track just to see how many of these symptoms ring true for you. Irritability and hypersensitivity. Do you find yourself getting frustrated and upset way too easily? Restlessness. Do you find yourself unable to settle down and sit quietly or fall asleep? Compulsive overworking. Do you struggle with work boundaries? Emotional numbness. Do you seem to lack capacity to feel empathy with others? Escapist behaviours. When there is a chance to catch our breath, do we look to things that are life-giving or do we just turn to a nubbing habit like food, Netflix or social media? Disconnected from our identity and calling. Do we feel disconnected from who God created us to be and what he's called us to do? Not able to attend to human needs. Do we make time for the essential eight hours of sleep, exercise and nutritious food? Hoarding energy. Are we overly protective in our attempts to hoard the limited energy that we do have? Slippage in spiritual practices. As our schedule gets busier, is prayer and Bible study one of the first things to slide? I don't know about you, but a whole lot of those symptoms hit a bit too close to home. So the question remains, how do we get out of the fast lane and find the slower pace that Jesus seemed to have? How do we move to slowing in a world that continually seems to be speeding up? Mobile phones, internet and now smart watches means that we're contactable 24-7, which has created a society that leaves very little space for slowing. Often it's not only the pressures from outside that lead to this kind of hyperactive lifestyle, but the pressures from within as well. We wear busyness as a crown, thinking that it makes us important and somehow gives us significance. You would think as Christians we would know that our significance comes from our Creator. But sadly, Christians and Christian ministries are not immune from these pressures to perform and achieve. We seem to subscribe to our culture's addiction to hurry and striving and tend to add in the Protestant work ethic, which somehow equates hard work with godliness. Some of us have even convinced ourselves that it's honourable to exhaust ourselves for the growth of the kingdom. Writer Duncan Campbell has this to say, No amount of activity in the king's service will make up for the neglect of the king himself. The devil is not concerned about getting between us and work. His great concern is getting between us and God. Many a Christian worker has buried his spirituality in the grave of his activity. Famous theologian Dallas Willard puts it like this, Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. He says that in order for us to step into a deeper relationship with our Heavenly Father, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. So how do we do that? How do we eliminate hurry and start to practice the art of slowing? 
Firstly, I think we need to examine our activities. Perhaps we need to lay all of our activities before the Lord and ask him if any of them aren't part of the yoke that he's made for us to wear. Secondly, we need to build margin into our day. This is still a really hard one for me as I tend to estimate the number of things that I can get done and underestimate the time it's going to take. So I'm trying to reverse the procedure and build some margin into my day. Finally, in order to teach ourselves to practice slowing, we can deliberately put ourselves in positions where we have to practice patience and simply wait and then make sure we do so calmly without the distraction of a screen. Here are some suggestions. Get in the longest line at the checkout. Might seem insane, but it really does make you practice patience, talk to people, and not treat the cashier like an ATM. Drive the speed limit and be a patient and gracious driver. Keep off your phone until after you've had your quiet time. Simple, but effective. Set a time limit for social media and TV viewing. Quit multitasking. It's a myth. Walk slower. Take the time to stop and smell the flowers, literally. One of the most beneficial things that we've done in our family to try and implement slowing is to start to practice the Sabbath. Sundays have always been a bit of a slower day for us, but last year helped us to make it a stop day. The word Sabbath is derived from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which literally means to stop or rest. So to examine what the Bible has to say about the Sabbath, let's just start at the very beginning, which is, of course, a very good place to start. Genesis 1, and we're going to start reading from verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Now creating the world was a big job. He'd done mountains, lights, animals, humans, plants, birds and trees. But the Bible doesn't say that God needed a rest. And I think we can safely assume that it wasn't because he was weary. Isaiah is quite clear in telling us that God neither faints nor is weary. And Psalm 121 verse 1 says that indeed he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So why did God rest? I believe he rested to set an example for us to show us the rhythm of work and rest. God is the first author of rest. He created with power and wisdom all things in six days, and then he declared a rest day. When he's handing out the Ten Commandments, he actually cites himself as an example. Reading from Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, 
but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You have to remember that when God gave out this commandment, the Israelites had been living as slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. They weren't the masters of their own time and they didn't have permission to rest. When God called them out of Egypt into the promised land, he affirmed that they were his children and instructed them how to live according to the way he had created them. They were called to keep a Sabbath so that they could stop and enter into the rest of God, the shadow of the Almighty. God is very serious about rest for his people, their servants, and even their animals. Our creator knows how we function best. He created us with limitations. And because he has given us limitations, he doesn't ask more of us than we can give, even when others do. This means that we need to be fully aware of our own limitations and even embrace them. Because as we looked at earlier, it's in our weakness that his strength prevails. I wonder whether some of our hesitancy towards the practice of the Sabbath has to do with the way Jesus clashed with the Pharisees over their practice of it. In Luke 6, we see them having a go at Jesus and his disciples for picking a few heads of grain on the Sabbath. But Jesus was only against abuse and misuse of the Sabbath, because in Luke 6, 5, we hear him declare himself as Lord of the Sabbath. And in Mark 2, 27, he proclaims that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Through this, he affirms that for us, under the new covenant, the Sabbath principle is a gift from God for our own well-being. So rather than tie us up in legalistic bondage of what we can and cannot do on a certain day, it actually gives us freedom to regularly stop and enjoy a period of renewal as we rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I believe that in that freedom we get to decide not if, but how we practice the Sabbath principle so that we experience rest that fits with our life situation and personal disposition. This means that your practice of the Sabbath might look different to my practice of the Sabbath. There are a number of different ideologies that people have suggested around the practice of Sabbath, but most of them fall into four main principles. Stopping or ceasing. Ceasing to strive and putting away our to-do list. Resting. This is not another word for idleness, but rather stepping into the rest of God's grace and practicing physical and emotional rest. Doing something that brings you joy. Maybe a meal with friends, a long walk, a nap or reading a book. And finally, spending time with God. We can read or sleep as much as we like. But for a Sabbath rest to be truly restorative, we need to have an aspect of it that refreshes our soul, which we know only happens when we connect to our ultimate power source, our Creator, God. But spending intentional quality time in the presence of our Heavenly Father shouldn't be something we reserve for once a week, but rather it should be something we look to do on a daily basis through the practice of silence and solitude. 
Out of all of the practices of Jesus that we are looking at in this session, none of them is more obvious throughout the Gospels than his practice of silence and solitude. So let's just take a look at some key examples. We'll find the first one in Matthew, right at the end of chapter 3. There's a story of Jesus' baptism where he comes out of the water and there's a, literally a voice from heaven saying, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So this is like Jesus' commissioning, launching him into ministry. But then in the very next line, we read, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The word we read for desert in this passage doesn't necessarily mean heat, sand and rattlesnakes. The Greek word used here for desert is eremos, which can actually be translated as a place that is deserted or desolate. It can mean wilderness or a place that is solitary, lonely or quiet. Perhaps like me, you too have read this story and thought, yeah, that's just like the devil to strike when we're all alone and feeling hangry. But Jesus doesn't face Satan from a place of weakness, but rather a place of strength. He knew what he was coming up against and he knew what he needed to strengthen himself before he faced the enemy. Jesus knew more than anyone where, or rather who, his strength came from, and he made it a priority to remove all other distractions and meet with his heavenly Father on a regular basis. And that is why we find Jesus seeking out the Eremos, or secluded place, time and time again. We see him go there when he's exhausted. In Mark 1, we find Jesus at the end of a very long day. He taught in the synagogue in the morning, headed back to Simon and Andrew's place for lunch, healed Simon's mother-in-law, and then after sunset, we're told that the whole town of Capernaum gathered at the door for him to heal the sick and drive out demons. And then in verse 35, we read, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place, Eremos, where he prayed. We see him go there when he's peopled out. In Mark 6:46, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus dismisses the crowd and then slips away into the hills to pray. We see him go there when he's grieving. In Matthew 14:13, after hearing about the murder of John the Baptist, he withdraws by boat to a solitary place. We see him go there in the course of a normal day. In Luke 6.12 we read, One of those days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And if there was any doubt in our minds that this was a kind of one-off special event, Luke dispels that idea when he tells us in chapter 5 verse 16 that Jesus often or frequently withdrew to the wilderness, Eremos, to pray. Another translation says that Jesus made a habit of retreating. Jesus lived, abided, and dwelt in the shelter of his Most High, Father. But even as God's own Son, he knew what it took to stay there. He continually carved out time and space to step into the shelter of the Most High. And just in case we were waiting for a personal invitation, he gives that to us too. He says, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. 
Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So let me just ask you, when was the last time you intentionally sought out Eremos, a place of seclusion for the purpose of silence and solitude, to step into the shelter of the Most High? I, for one, know how easy it is to look at the chaos of our lives and think, how on earth can I find any semblance of silence here? Or if your kids are a bit smaller, you might be thinking, I can't even go to the bathroom alone. How am I supposed to carve out solitude to spend time with God? I get it. It's hard. But it's also necessary. If we want intimacy with our Father, if we want to hear Him whisper into our spirits, and learn to dwell in his shelter, then we need to remove distractions and quieten our souls long enough to listen. Sometimes this might look like an hour or two sitting in prayer and meditation and studying his word. And if that opportunity presents itself, grasp it with both hands. But more realistically and more regularly, Eremos could look like setting the alarm 15 minutes earlier and praising the Father as he paints the sky with another amazing sunrise. It might look like sitting in your car waiting for one of your kids and reading a psalm instead of trolling Instagram. I've met with God in the silence and solitude on my morning walk, in my wardrobe and even sitting on the bathroom floor. Sometimes I manage to read a few words Sometimes I manage to read a few chapters of his word, but sometimes I just sit and breathe. And as I do, I exhale my inadequacies and breathe in his strength. I exhale my frustrations and breathe in his peace. I exhale the lies and let the truth of who he says I am just fill my lungs and my spirit. It's not about where you are. It's not even about how many chapters you can read or how many boxes you can tick on your prayer list. It's about relationship, intimacy, and connecting in with the vine and receiving our nourishment from him so we can continue to grow and bear fruit. There is one story told in all four Gospels where Jesus met with his father in silence and solitude. On the night before he was betrayed, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. This was a favourite meeting place for Jesus and his disciples, and so it's no surprise that we find him there pouring his heart out to his Father. In Matthew 14.36, we read his words, Abba, Father, he said, if everything is possible for you, take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus surrendered. He surrendered to his Father's will. Surrender can be somewhat of an intimidating word. It can conjure up images of defeat, loss, and maybe even being overpowered. I don't know about you, but sometimes that word has a tendency to kind of rub me up the wrong way. It seems to bristle against the fibres of my independence and self-sufficiency. But the kind of surrender that our God calls us to is not about defeat or loss because it's born out of his loving kindness and tenderness that he has towards us, his children. 
This kind of surrender is a beautiful exchange where he may be calling us to give something up, but our loss will lead to more gain than we could possibly imagine. It restrains us while at the same time releasing us. It redirects us to renew us. It restricts us while opening up immeasurable opportunity. Surrender leads to resurrection. And not just for Jesus, but for us too. A promise of a new life for our hearts, souls and minds. You may think that the practice of surrender seems a little out of place grouped together with the practices of slowing, Sabbath, silence and solitude. But you see, every single one of those practices must start with an act of surrender and continue in an attitude of trust. In order for us to practice slowing, we need to surrender the yoke that we've gotten so used to wearing, the yoke of hurry, activity and the need to achieve. And instead, we need to take on the yoke of Jesus, trusting him when he says that he won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on us. I just love the way John Mark Comer phrases it in his book. He says he, as in Jesus, offers his apprentices a whole new way to bear the weight of our humanity with ease at his side like two oxen in a field tied shoulder to shoulder, with Jesus doing all the heavy lifting. At his pace, slow, unhurried, present to the moment, full of love, joy and peace. An easy life isn't an option. An easy yoke is. To rest or Sabbath in the middle of our busy schedules also takes an act of surrender because we have to be able to let go and hand over our to-do list into the hands of the Father. We have to learn to live like Jesus and trust God with our workloads and surrender the seemingly endless tasks that we have to do. We need to believe that he will take the meagre loaves and fishes that we have to offer and multiply them to accomplish what needs to be done. We need to surrender and trust him enough to slow, stop and Sabbath. Because Sabbath was made for man, it is God's gift to us and it's the way he created us to enable us to dwell in his shelter. And finally, we need to learn to surrender some sound and socialising and trade it in for some silence and solitude. We need to do whatever it takes to find time in our day to be still and know that he is God. The creator of the universe invites you and invites me to step into his shelter and rest in his shadow. He invites us not to do more, but rather to relax and to surrender into his unconditional unchanging and unfathomable love. As we finish up this session, I'm going to leave you with this little story. A couple of years ago, when I was crossing the street, I literally tripped over a curb, fell and broke a little tiny bone in the side of my foot. This was a little bone that I didn't even know was there until I broke it and realised that I actually couldn't walk without it. Not only could I not walk, but I really couldn't stand. 
which meant for a period of about six weeks, simple activities like cooking dinner, hanging out the washing and having a shower became a real production. Because there was so much that I couldn't do, I found myself spending most of my days sitting down, leg up, getting more and more frustrated. About two weeks into my forced rest period, we had an MAF day of prayer and I almost didn't go. I was was in quite a bit of pain and feeling a little bit sorry for myself. But Dan encouraged me to go just for the morning. One of the engineers got up and told a story about a bird that he'd seen that morning. That got my attention straight away, as most engineers I know aren't the kind of guys to birdwatch. He said that as he sat down in his breakfast table, a little sparrow flew up and slammed into the glass door and collapsed to the ground and literally just laid there. After a moment, he went over, gently picked up the bird and just held it in the palm of his hands for a full two minutes. Just when he thought that he was going to have to go and bury the poor little thing, the bird gave itself a little shake and flew off again. As he finished the story, I had tears on my cheeks as I felt God whisper into my spirit, Surrender to me, your desire to be doing and your need to achieve, and stop. Rest right here in the palm of my hand. Just let me hold you. You know, that same invitation is there for you today. He's inviting all of us to rest in his shadow, to dwell, abide, and make our homes in his shelter. Don't wait till you slam into a window or break something, whether it be a bone, your mental health, or a relationship. Surrender your to-do list to God, practice slowing, and step into his Sabbath rest. Take the time to sit with him in silence and solitude. Take God up on his invitation and head homeward bound to the shelter of the Most High.